I'd invite you this morning, uh, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter. As you turn there, I want to say um, with uh, Reverend Bill, thanks for your help uh, during this Thanksgiving offering. It is so fun to get to partner with them. Uh, if you're new around here, there may have been a little bit of language in the video that's unfamiliar to you. When Bill uses that CAA language, what he means is that we are in creative access areas, uh, which means uh, we're going into places where the gospel is not legal to go. Um, but brothers and sisters in Christ are uh, taking the word of God there, and uh, we're thrilled to be partnering with them. Um, and thanks for making it through the snow today, and welcome to those of you who didn't and are joining us online today. Um, what a beautiful morning. Uh, but this morning we're in Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, and I want to begin reading at the fifth verse. And so if you're with us and able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will bring you home to the land that your ancestors possessed. You will possess it again and he will do good things for you and multiply you, making you more numerous even than your ancestors. Then the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you love the Lord your God with all your mind and with all your being in order that you may live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and chase you, but you will change and obey, but you will change and obey the Lord's voice and do all his commandments that I'm commanding you right now. The Lord your God will help you succeed in everything you do, in your own fertility, your livestock's offspring, and your land's produce. Everything will become great because the Lord will once again enjoy doing good things for you just as he enjoyed doing, good thing, doing them for your ancestors. And because you will be obeying the Lord your God's voice, keeping his commandments and his regulations that are written in his, this instruction scroll, and because you will have returned to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being, this commandment that I'm giving you right now is definitely not too difficult for you. It isn't unreachable. It isn't up in heaven somewhere so that you have to ask who will go up for us to heaven and get it for us that we can hear it and do it. Nor is it across the ocean somewhere so that you have to ask who will cross the ocean for us and get it for us so that we can hear it and do it. Not at all. The word is very close to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart waiting for you to do it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, so for those of you who've been joining us uh, on this journey through the story that changes everything, yesterday we finished uh, Deuteronomy, and so uh, we made it through the Torah. Woo-hoo, congratulations. Uh, if you haven't been joining with us, today's a good day. We're into Joshua. Grab a bookmark and join with us. We got all through the laws, and now we're into all the violence. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, it's a good moment to join in. Uh, truly, as we start into Joshua uh, daily today, Joshua is a bit of a hinge in, 
in that it completes the story of the Exodus because it gets the people finally into the land, but it also is a hinge that moves us into the historical books and the historical narratives. Um, but in these, I think we're now on day 65 or so. Um, I will say this has been a, a really interesting journey and it's been hard work. Uh, but I, I have thoroughly uh, been receiving from the Lord daily uh, the joy of coming to understand the word deeply. Um, but as we get to the end of the Torah, uh, these first five books of the law, I'm, I'm still left with a question that I want to wrestle with you today. And it's, it's this, what does, what does all this mean for me and for you as 21st century followers of Christ? Especially, I mean, I kind of get Genesis and the first part of Exodus, but from like Exodus 19 on, when we get into all those complicated law parts and codes, what does any of that have to do with us? And so this morning, I, I probably should have thrown some slides up there, but I would love for you to take just a handful of notes with me today. Uh, but there's a calling that I think, as I've wrestled with these texts, I think there's a calling that continues to hang upon our life. And then I think there are four aspects of the Torah that I, I think stick with us and that we have to wrestle with. And so first of all, the calling. We talked about it a few weeks ago when we were in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. I think that from this section of scripture, we learned this. There is a call upon our life to be holy as God is holy. To be holy as God is holy. That, that invitation, that echo through history of God inviting a people to be called out of the world, to be filled with his spirit so that they can be a reflection of the uniqueness and holiness of God is so critical to this section of the scripture and to the Bible as a whole. But that holiness, that call to holiness, then kind of gets manifested, I would say, in four different ways in the text. One, there's all these codes that have to do with what I'll call today ceremonial holiness. So if you're taking notes, both of you, this is, uh, this is the first one. Ceremonial holiness, ceremonial holiness. That, that we have in this section of scripture all these purity codes and all of this invitation to how do we enter into the holy places where the otherness of God exists and how, we, how do we do that in a way because as Danny said during prayer, because this God is good, but he is not safe. And so how do, we, how do we know how to enter into that presence and how do we live in ways and structure our life and worship in ways that, that limit the contamination upon our lives? And what do we do with that contamination in order for us to be present to a holy God and to be able to live out God's purposes? So, so a lot of it has to do with that. Secondly, it has to do with rituals and practices and, and the keeping of time. I mentioned this last week, but, but several times, at least seven times in the Torah, there's a deep concern about not forgetting who we are and how do we make sure that our children know who they're supposed to be. And how do we pass that faith on from generation to generation? And, and as we were going through these texts, I'm reminded again and again that the majority of the people who are being framed by this law are illiterate themselves. And so have to lean into these daily and weekly and monthly and annual and every seven years and every 50 year kind of practices 
that shape and form them to be the kind of people that God wants them to be and that they don't forget what God has done and what God is doing and God, what God wants to do in their life. Are you with me? But then there are, are a couple others that I think have to do with the codes. And, and let me just say, sometimes I think, and even in my own life, I've dismissed a number of these codes too quickly. And one of the things that going through them more carefully helped me to realize this time is how many, how some of the codes that I've easily dismissed, I should go back and wrestle with, what are those there for? And let me give you just a quick example. In the 21st chapter of Deuteronomy, there's a code that actually not only have I dismissed, but oftentimes it's kind of thrown back at the Christian faith as a kind of, what are you guys talking about? Your Bible tells people to do crazy stuff. And in Deuteronomy 21, there's a law that says, if you have really rebellious children, bring them to the community and stone them to death, right? Now, Brent feels good about that one, but some of you a little less apprehensive, a little more apprehensive. Um, but so I was wrestling with that code that, that obviously none of us should do, especially in the light of the revelation of Jesus. But in its context, in a culture in which all of the nations around strong patriarchal systems of honor codes, where a child who has dishonored the family can be killed by the family, in particular by the father. I was struck this time by how the law gives a patriarch no authority to kill their rebellious child. And in fact, what's fascinating to me is they have to drag that child to the community and mom has to come with them. So this can't just be angry dads. This has to be the family coming together to the community to say, I don't know what to do. And it's only the community then that can respond to that child. And I know that stoning that child seems just abhorrent. And I think the scripture interprets that text to say, don't do that. But as I read it this time, I also thought, you know, we as a community constantly lament the children in our midst who end up doing destruction to lots of other people. And I would not advocate then that we stone those rebellious ones. But I thought about how that law that I so easily dismiss is actually leading God's people away from a authoritative patriarchy, an idea that somehow we as parents have the right to abuse our children. But on the flip side of that, it invites us as a community to take seriously our responsibility for each other's children their spiritual, mental, and educational well-being. Because if we do not, they will become sources of destruction for the community, and they often do. Are you with me? So here's three and four. As we think about this call to holiness, and that it's ceremonial, and that it's found in keeping time, there's, I would say, two major buckets I would put a bunch of these codes and laws into. And the first major bucket is this our bodies, sexual purity, laws about how to think carefully about the stability of our families and our community, and a whole bunch of codes that are very concerned about the tenuousness of our desires and appetites and how those are formed. And I would say the reason why is because as God's people enter into the land, they are surrounded by a people who worship all sorts of cults, usually thrown in a lump called Baals or Baals. 
And that the problem when they're surrounded by all of these fertility cults and religions like, the, like Baalism, the majority of them are cults of sensuality that involve things like prostitution and involve all sorts of behaviors that are beyond what God would want for us to do with our bodies. They're about the misuse of children, oftentimes even the sacrifice of them. They oftentimes include the neglect of the elderly or the misuse of those with unique needs in a community. And so often they have to do because they're gods built in our own image. They are gods that fuel our own appetites. And so here is a people who say, listen, we do not live in a world where we get to make up our own reality. We believe in a creator who has made a creation. And therefore there is a grain to the universe in which we live. And if we want to live in ways that bring life and goodness, we had better discover what that grain of the universe is and live according to it and be willing to discipline both our bodies and our desires and our community in ways that give life in that creation. Are you with me? And the fourth is, all these codes that have to do with care for the vulnerable and the formation of an economically, and I would say even ecologically just, and hopeful community. Because not only will the people enter into a land where they, all these bales and all these fertility cults and all that kind of stuff exists, they're also entering into a world filled with empires. And more often than not, like Egypt dealt with them, empires don't really care that much about a whole bunch of people. They primarily care about strength and power an economic standing. And when they do that, too often, they do not reflect care for those who are not part of their people and who exist on the margins. And so here are all these codes that say, not so with you, people of God. You are to reflect the unique love and care of God in the way you treat widows and orphans and strangers in your midst. I wish I had a nickel for how many times the Torah says, you once were slaves. <laughs> and therefore you will treat others the way that you wanted to be treated when you were in places of vulnerability. And so the people of God are to treat the economy. The Greek word for, that we use for economy is oikonomia, a word that, that means household that the people of God are to not treat the economy as rugged individualists in a competition with each other, but they are to treat the economy as though they live in a large and complicated household and therefore to practice patterns of forgiveness and care and equality and hope. Amen. That was really good. There's about six of you asleep, but those of you who are listening, this is good. We have a call to be holy. We are to participate in ways of ceremonial holiness, rituals, practices, rhythms that remind us of that. We are to be people who care about what we do with our bodies and not be shaped by the bales. We are to care for the vulnerable and the poor economically and not be reflections of the empire. And I want to say amen to all of that. That sounds great. Amen. Thank you. The problem, if we can go to Deuteronomy 30, is this. They didn't do it very well. And because they didn't do it very well, 
they're all going to die in the wilderness and they don't get to enter the promised land, including Moses. And so what Moses is wrestling with in our text is the fact, is this question, is this life that God calls them to, to be holy as he is holy, is it even possible? Or is God holding up a bar that's impossible for us to jump over? And so as he preaches one last sermon to these, this new generation about to enter into the promised land, and as he empowers Joshua and gives him the authority to lead these people, he, you have to ask this question, can you guys even do this? To which, if you paid attention to our reading, Moses' answer is a very strong and adamant yes, you can't. Because the word is not distant. You don't have to go find it. Moses is saying, I brought it down from the mountain to you. God has brought it close to you. It is not distant. It is not up in heaven, so you have to go get it. It's not across the ocean, so you have to go swim and find it. God has brought his word, his will, his purpose. He has brought it to you. It has come near. And not to get overly technical this morning, but there's a kind of second level to the text. And that is, as we've mentioned before, this text is not just for those who are about to enter the promised land. This text is also for exiles coming out of Babylon who are about ready to enter back into Jerusalem. Who know that their ancestors didn't do this well. Not just the ones who died in the wilderness, but Joshua and his gang who entered the land, they did it okay for a while, but eventually didn't do it very well. And that's why they ended up back in exile. So now they have a kind of big double question. Are you serious? Is this even possible? To which on Moses' lips, we get the prophet's answer. Yeah, it's possible, not just because God has brought the word close to you, but because God has given you his spirit so he can circumcise your hearts. Not just your bodies, but change you from the inside out so that you want to obey this law. Are you with me? Oh man, this is really good. Thank you. So if you're with me, all of that's great. But how does that relate to us? And in particular, not just we 21st century types, but, but what do we Gentiles do with this? Quickly, um, I think we have to look to the early church to figure out what are we Gentiles supposed to do with this? And by the way, the answer is not, you get to ignore it. That's the whole thing Paul was saying in 2 Timothy 3 about how all scripture is inspired by God. He's saying to Timothy and all we Gentile Christians, you don't get out of this. But when Paul and Peter and the rest of the gang met in Jerusalem, we get two versions of what happened there. In Acts chapter 15, Paul's kind of bothered that there are all these Gentiles who've gotten in, but they don't really want to get circumcised in the flesh. And they're used to eating a lot of stuff that makes Jewish people kind of go, eh. So what are they supposed to do? In Acts 15, here's the version we get. This is um, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, I conclude that we shouldn't create problems for Gentiles who turn to God. Instead, we should write a letter telling them to avoid the pollution associated with idols, sexual immorality, eating meat strangled from animals, or from animals that are strangled, and consuming blood. Galatians 2, Paul gives his version of what happens. Paul says, at the end of it, 
basically said, you guys don't have to get circumcised, but here in verse 10 of Galatians 2, he says, they only asked that we would remember the poor, which was certainly something I was willing to do. In my opinion, I think James puts this together in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, true devotion or true religion is this. It's pure and faultless before God the Father. And here's what it looks like. It cares for widows and orphans in their difficulties. And it keeps the world from contaminating us. So I know that was complicated, but here's what I think it means. When it comes to we Gentiles, we do not get out of the call to be holy as God is holy. We are called to be reflections of the holy God. Now, if you were taking notes, I do think it gets us out of a few of the ceremonial holiness parts. That the Jerusalem Council looked and said, you know what? Some of this stuff's just kind of Jewish. And I don't know that the Gentiles have to do all of that stuff. But I would say this, and I really want to talk about how the holiness of God is not something we have to be afraid to, to approach, but the scripture begins to understand the holiness of God as something that has escaped the tabernacle and the temple and is now empowered in Jesus touching everything and making everything whole. But I still think there are questions to ask about what does it look like for us to be different from the world in that area of ceremonial holiness. And I do think there are rituals and practices and keeping time that still matter to us. I think in the Christian tradition, we see this moving from the ways the Jewish people kept time to now the ways that we keep time with Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and Pentecost and ordinary time. And I want to say to you, and I don't mean this as a put down. It will sound cranky, but I don't mean it this way. You're not illiterate, but I've come to grasp the reality that most Christians like the Bible, but they really don't care that much about it. Even in this thing, I've realized most people don't really want to study the Bible. They want about 300 to 400 texts on rotation with a two-minute thought of the day to be connected to it. And most churches just want to give you kind of a, a verse or two and a, <laughs> and a Christian TED Talk attached to it. And I, I know that sounds bitter. I'm not that bitter, but I've gotten over it. <laughs> because for 1,500 years, we did form people to be holy who didn't know how to read. But if you don't care that much about the Bible, you had better pay attention to the practices that are forming you. And while I'm on a roll, I know Diane was cranky about Christmas last week, but it has been funny to me to watch all of the conversations about Sunday falling on a Christmas, or Christmas falling on a Sunday, and are we going to have church or not? And the answer is, I, I have to be here. And I really, again, I'm not bothered by churches that decide not to do that or this. Because I understand, you know, there's a lot of folks who come to church on Saturday nights now, etc. But what I do think it reveals to us is that we are a people who, who are largely shaped by not practices of what it means to be a community of worship gathered together called the church. 
but we're primarily people who've been shaped to value family above what it means to be church. And I, and I don't really hate that because of all the idolatries, it's my favorite one. <laughs> and it's the least destructive of all the idolatries. But I think the conflict does reveal to us that our primary value has become the family. And that is largely what we worship. And we think of the church not as a place that becomes what God has called it to be because families are called to be part of it. But we want really strong families that the church becomes a helping force for in the world. And again, I don't know that that sends us to hell, but it certainly exposes our idolatries. Third, sexual purity, the stability of the family and community, the formation of desire, I think these last two really do apply to us. We have our own version of Baalism today. Our own version of Baalism says you are not a complete person unless you live out all of your sexual desires. Which, by the way, is heresy. Because if we're not fully people, unless we live out our sexual desires, then Jesus was not fully human. And the call to singleness for the sake of the gospel makes no sense at all. And so we are a people who have to learn how do we glorify God with our bodies? How do we guard our desires? How do we seek first the kingdom of God? And the second one applies to us, or the fourth one. We are people who have to care for the vulnerable and the formation of an economically and ecologically just and hopeful community. We still live in a world filled with empires who largely do not care about those at the margins and who teach us a myth of scarcity. And we are a people then who have to gather and ask, how do we reflect the missional and just and caring nature of God in our lives? So the question, though, of the text still remains. Can we do this? Can we even be holy as God is holy? Or now in our case, can we be holy as Christ is holy? And let me say, there are some parts of the Christian tradition that would say no. <laughs> no, we can't. In fact, there's some parts of the Christian tradition that would say the whole point of the law is to frustrate us and get us to say, well, we can't do this. And then just fall on the grace of God to somehow overlook what a mess we are until he can get us to heaven. I love those people. I think they're wrong. Because I believe the answer with Moses is yes. And the answer is yes, because we believe the word has come near. And it's what we celebrate this Advent season, that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. We do not have to go to that word. That word has come to us. And we also are a people who believe the Spirit has come and has the power to circumcise our hearts. In our tradition, we call this the optimism of grace. However, I would prefer to call it the hope of grace because I'm struggling with my optimism. And I need to land this plane so we can gather around a table but just, just briefly, I want to say, I have really struggled with this text, and I have really struggled with my sense 
of wanting to say to Moses, I don't think it's, I don't think we can do it. And here's why. I find that there's a part of the Christian church in America that reads the Torah, the Gospels, and the Epistles and seems to affirm all those places where it talks about our bodies, our family systems, our desires, and it takes all of those texts with the utmost seriousness, often to the point of not paying close attention to the cultural settings or the way the Scripture moves and develops and interprets itself, But when it comes to all those other places where it talks about justice, economic balance, care for creation, peacemaking, their exegetical methods go into hyperdrive. They start saying, oh, that's an agrarian world. Or what that word really means is this. Or they take all these (laughs) texts that invite us to do very real material things with our lives and say, well, really, those are spiritual truths. And spiritualize them to such a degree that that neither Jesus nor the apostolic writers really have anything concrete to say about the reality of our economic lives and how we treat the stranger. The philosopher Immanuel Kant, a couple of centuries ago, wrote a little book as he was wrestling with the gospel in the midst of the Enlightenment. He wrote a book called Religion Within the Bounds of Reason Alone. He was trying to get a manageable faith within the limits of the Enlightenment. And I think there's a part of the Christian tradition that wants to say there is no way in a complex market economy filled with various nationalisms to live the fullness of the holy life. And so what they offer is a manageable Christian faith set within the limits of empire. But I find that there is another part of the Christian church in America that flips that exact script. It takes with utmost seriousness all that the Torah, the Gospels, the Epistles has to say about liberation, economic justice, ecological stewardship, peacemaking, and the welcoming of the stranger. It loves those texts. Often to the point of not paying close attention to the cultural settings and historical complexities, etc. of those texts. But when it comes to all those places where the scripture talks about our bodies, the nature of relational covenant, discipling our desires, why we should have children, how we should live as a community called church, how that community connects to each other, their exegetical methods go into hyperdrive. So much so that we end up with an ethic that just says, do whatever your desires tell you to do, just try not to hurt or abuse each other. Which, by the way, is not an unimportant ethic but it also doesn't give a whole lot of direction either. And rather than being suspicious of the way an objectifying pornographic culture may be malforming all of our desires, it ends up placating to it. It ends up saying there is no way that we can embody this holiness. And so what we'll offer is a manageable Christian faith set within the limits of Baalism. So I want to ask Moses today, is this possible? Can there be in the 21st century 
a generation of holy people who are able to live the fullness of the gospel without being shaped by the politicization and socialization of their present age. And I have to say to you, I am not optimistic or pessimistic. I'm a little depressed. But I am a prisoner of hope. And no offense, but not because I'm good enough or you're good enough, but because the word has come near and because the spirit is present and can circumcise not just our bodies, but our hearts. And so we come around the table this morning. Not just to think about what it means to be holy or to celebrate one who was holy, but to take that life into ourselves. Lord Jesus Christ, Come. Come and shape us and form us and fill us. We do not want a religion or a faith within the bounds of empire or Baalism alone. I know in our own strength it is not possible. but with you, all things are possible. And so come and form and fill us today. Make us what we eat today. Make us the body of Christ for the sake of the world. And God's people said, amen. amen. I'm gonna invite those who are gonna come and help me serve. If you're a guest with us today, um, the only rule for participation in the Lord's Supper is a realization that you've been called to something that you cannot do in your own strength and a desire to receive that grace today. If you'd do me a favor, if you'd hang on to the elements, we will take this meal together in just a moment together. But we're gonna sing as we're served today.
invite you uh, to hold the elements out in front of you, if you would. A prayer, prayer, blessing. Almighty God, we hold in front of us a mystery and a hope. The mystery today is that the word is not far from us has become flesh and dwelt among us. And by your spirit, you have placed it in our hearts and in our ears and on our lips. And there is a hope here that what you call us to be, to be a reflection of you, a people of holy love, filled, transformed, sent as an instrument of your grace into the world, it is not too impossible of a thing to have happen. And so we invite you to enter in, make this a means of grace to us today. We hold common things, make them uncommon for us. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread After giving thanks, he raised it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us take today and eat in remembrance of him.
after supper was over, he took the cup, he blessed it, he redefined it as his blood, poured out for us to preserve us blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take and drink in remembrance of him. May it be so, we pray today. Make us the body of Christ. And God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me?
come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Again, thanks for making it through the snow today. If you listen well, not just today, but really to the first five books of the Bible, part of the reason Genesis and that first part of Exodus is so important is because this is the part of, of the story that tells. It tells the story that God meets us in our bondage and in our slavery and in our brokenness. God does not expect us to become a reflection of his holiness and then get to him. God keeps coming to us wherever we are in our sin and brokenness and shame and loves us and embraces us. But the rest of that is about how he just doesn't leave us there. It brings us out of that bondage and leads us into something that looks like a reflection of his purposes in the world. And that's not too hard. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And that's why this benediction is for us this morning. May the God who has come near and makes peace, may he sanctify us through and through. May our spirit and our soul and our body, may they be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful and patient and good. And he will not stop finish working until he finishes this work in us. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.